What a delight to uh, sing songs of praise with you this morning. It was uh, really encouraging, and uh, I am so happy that I'm able to be here with you and that you're able to be here this morning so that we could uh, partake together of the memorial meal and uh, be led in our thoughts as uh, Brother read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about how God saved us by setting aside and making null and foolish the wisdom of the world. And of course, uh, it is about that uh, foolish wisdom of the world that we have uh, determined to spend our time this week uh, studying. But I am reminded as I uh, rise to speak to you about how Paul concluded that uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians as he talked about the foolishness of the world. Uh, let us determine that if we boast at all, we boast in the Lord. We are indeed, I am afraid, engaged in a great uh, battle in the world in which we live. And we have uh, used as our... There we are. And we have used as our uh, theme for this week uh, the passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, particularly verse 5. But uh, the whole passage says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We are attempting, of course, in our own lives, and hopefully maybe as a congregation in preaching the gospel, to pull down those strongholds that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, and to take captive every thought within our own heart. We are opposed by the various modern isms, as I have listed them, in the world in which we live today. A uh, set of uh, ideas that are hostile to Christianity and are rooted in an entirely different way of understanding the world and understanding man and understanding right and wrong. And even as we attempt to uh, pull down those strongholds, what we'll discover is that they are elusive even in the minds of those who are uh, living their lives according to those points of view. That these are not always clearly articulated ideas in the world, but they are really more like polarizing impulses or tendencies of thought. And that makes them in some ways even the more dangerous as we attempt to explicate the scriptures and the plan of salvation that the supporters of these other ideas uh, are going to be uh, just fundamentally opposed but not even really fully understand themselves how it is or why it is that they are opposed. And we find ourselves as we preach the gospel to our friends and neighbors uh, as if uh, we had uh, encountered the Tower of Babel moments after God had confused their language. A lot of shouting, a lot of frustration, and yet no cooperation, coordination, because they don't understand one another. And it is hard to understand people, even when you share the same language, if you don't share the same set of values. And I can assure you that if you are the least versed in scriptures today, that the values that guide your life 
are obscure and maybe even perhaps offensive to the people in your uh, neighborhood for the most part. And so we talk about these various ideas under the term modernisms. Today we want to talk about relativism. And uh, then we'll talk about the idea of materialism tonight. And then we'll talk about uh, environmentalism, feminism, hedonism, Gnosticism, selfism. And of course, by that time, we've run out of uh, time and probably your patience by the end of the week. And uh, we could continue, of course, with many other isms. And I almost want to say, like the preacher of old did, I have never yet met an ism that I liked. But of course, he was confronted by one of his uh, congregation who said, well, what about baptism? <laughs> but of course, the old time preachers were usually much quicker witted uh, than us newfangled guys are, because I would have been, you know, just flabbergasted by that. But right away, he said, right there, it proves you don't know the difference between your tisms and your isms. <laughs> baptism is a good thing. But all these isms are bad things, and particularly this ism of relativism, and as is the case, as we talked about humanism this morning, these are not really new ideas, the kind of opposition that is raised up against the truth of the gospel has been pretty much the same throughout history. We just give them new kind of garb and new terms these days. And in fact, you recognize in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, the fundamental aspect of relativism, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that exactly what we see in the world today? As those things that once everybody knew were wrong and condemned and even thought were abhorrent and not to be even spoken of uh, as, uh, as uh, Christians, nonetheless today those very things are promoted and uh, even in some ways praised in our society. And you wonder what exactly is going on in the world. And I think the dividing line here in this uh, uh, idea of relativism is the idea of authority. Who has the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong? You know, we have all kinds of debates about is this a good policy, is this a bad policy? Should we approve of this kind of behavior or disapprove of this kind of behavior? Is this practical or useful or not? And one of the problems is that people can't come to an agreement because they just, they just bicker with one another, like at the Tower of Babel, without ever recognizing you can't make those kind of evaluations about what's good or bad or right or wrong until you agree on the standard. That's where you got to back up and start talking about uh, how we're going to evaluate these issues, not the issues themselves. And uh, one of the things that you'll recognize is that there are two ways in which basically we can decide what is right and wrong, two kinds of authority that we can appeal to. There is, as we are called in the media today, the religious right. That is, those people who read the scriptures as they were intended to be read as the authority for our lives. And of course, when you say the religious right, you got to recognize there's also the religious left. I'm sorry, over there on their left side. 
from my point of view, but I know from your point of view, you're right, and uh, of course that maybe is the issue we're talking about today. Nonetheless, we recognize there is a religious left, that is those people who claim to be religious, claim to worship God, but they principally see the Bible as just a devotional manual. It has no real authority over their life because they've set aside its authority by saying, I think this and I think the other, and refusing to accept what it fundamentally says. This issue in the world, however, is what we would call antinomianism. Antinomianism, that is anti-laws. That's the prevailing philosophy of the world in which we live. There should be, ought not to be, cannot be any universal laws about what is right and what is wrong. Absolutely astonishing. I did some postdoctoral work at USF, and I remember vividly being in a class about ethics, because uh, they uh, talk about ethics a lot in the universities. And uh, we were in a circle, all of these, uh, uh, most, for the most part, uh, professors who were uh, in this class together. And the uh, professor who was leading it was uh, leaned up in his chair against the wall, smoking a cigarette under a no smoking sign, trying to talk to us about uh, ethics and uh, how we decide what is right and what is wrong. And I could not resist saying there are only two ways in which you can understand what is right and what's wrong. Either God gets to decide what is what right and what is wrong, there is a law and an authority that you live by, or it's might makes right. And uh, they, of course, refused to uh, accept that. They wanted to say there are all kinds of ways we can set ethical principles. Every profession in America today has an ethics manual, and they presume on the basis of history, on the basis of their own rationality, that they can decide these are the ways we decide what is right and what is wrong. And of course, they see those of us who believe in the scriptures as being intolerant, rigid, authoritarian, and bigoted. Or as the professor told me, limited cognitive complexity. And, uh, you know, I was resentful for a while, but as I've gotten older, I am like thankful, limited cognitive complexity. My dad warned me about that when I went off to college. He told me, now, son, you're going to hear a lot of things there in college, and some of it's going to be useful, but a lot of it's not going to be useful. I don't want you to accept all of that. You need to sort through it and decide what is, what is right and what is wrong. And I said, well, I want to be open-minded. And he said, now, son, right there's the problem. Don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out while you're away from home. And of course, unfortunately, as is the case with so many young people, as I had gone to Florida State, uh, my brains did fall out. Thankfully, I was rescued by uh, some uh, devout Christians who took the time to try and help me find my way again. But there are these only two really consistent ethical positions. Either God is in charge or might makes right. We have to decide that there is no other way. And you get the sense of that in the book of Judges. Sometimes I read those uh, books in the Old Testament like, why in the world did God include this? But the book of Judges clearly is included so you can arrive at this conclusion at the end of it. Judges 21 and verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If there is not a authority, if there is not someone as in the nation of Israel who is appointed by God, 
to be the uh, king, then everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And you look at the book of Judges and it goes from bad to worse to worser uh, before the end. And you're almost thankful that the book is concluded. At least we have gotten this lesson. And what happens in the world in which we live today, when people have abandoned God's authority for their lives, there is a sense in which they have to get rid of all morality whatsoever. Nietzsche, who is one of those uh, kind of scare names in terms of philosophy, at least for uh, me, gives me nightmares. But uh, Nietzsche sees with a clear eye the inevitable consequence of those people who abandon God. They are rid of the Christian God and now believe all the more firmly that they must cling to Christian morality. But when one gives up biblical certainty, one pulls the right to Christian morality right out from under one's feet. The idea that Jesus was an ethical teacher, but just a man and an ethical teacher, and that you can have the golden rule without accepting Jesus' authority is just not possible. Some people will play around the edge for a while before they ultimately fall into into the hell of antinomianism, but Nietzsche says that's what's going to happen to you ultimately. We must never forget that we are creatures under authority. I always am careful with my terminology there. Human beings are not animals, but we are creatures in the same way that the animals are creatures, that God created us as he created the animals, but he created us differently than he created the animals. He formed us of the dust of the earth and he breathed in us and we became a living soul. And that we are nonetheless creatures who owe an obligation to our creator. That we are people under authority. When I uh, first started teaching at Florida College, as uh, uh, David was kind enough to remind you 44 years ago, I uh, had a beard in those days. They said I looked like Chuck Norris for a while. I know how silly that is. Maybe it was students just trying to get a better grade. I'm not sure. But I did have a nice, thick uh, red beard, and, uh, you know, I was... uh, Maybe uh, kind of pleased with that, but I would grow it in the summer, and then I went to school, and the rules in those days were no facial hair on campus. So uh, every fall, I would have to shave it off, and then I could grow it back in the summer, which is probably the least attractive time in Florida to have a beard, but I would have to shave it off every fall. People say I'm a rebel, but at least I understand that I am under authority and that we do what we are required to do when we are under authority and that we are under authority whether we work at a college that allows beards or not we're under authority to God in heaven above and that he has the right to tell us how we ought to live our lives and what is right and what is wrong and we have the obligation to uh, be obedient to that even in The theme for this week, you recognize the whole point of taking captive every thought is so that we can bring it uh, to, uh, to captivity to the obedience of Christ Jesus. That our point is to bring our thoughts under control, not just because that's a better way to be successful in life or a better way to uh, control our own behavior, but we do it because we want to bring our thoughts as well as our bodies into obedience to Jesus Christ. That we have this obligation to be obedient uh, 
That's who we are as creatures. Even Jesus understood when he took on the form of flesh and lived life on the same basis that we do, that he needed to be obedient. And he learned obedience, even the obedience on the cross. And that Peter said it well in Acts chapter 5, when he's confronted by the Sanhedrin and they tell him to stop preaching Jesus and he says we must obey God rather than men. Ultimately, we are creatures under authority and we need to be obedient. And that's been the constant argument of Scripture forever, that we owe God our kind of obedience. What that suggests to us then is that there is a right and a wrong. There's a right way of life and a wrong way of life. But the world we live in today suggests that's not true, that everybody has the right and indeed the obligation. Not to be obedient, but to shape your own life and to choose your own view of the world. And in fact, they go so far as to say that uh, we, each of us, live in the world that we define ourselves. There's this social reality that's defined by the uh, participants that, in fact, uh, you recognize that there's some trivial kinds of examples that you could start with that suggest maybe we could build this idea of there being a social reality defined by the participants. Uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, depends on where you're sitting in the audience as to the point of view that you would take about uh, the lesson, that uh, if we, in fact, have a debate, it's much easier to recognize that, that the people who sit on this side are more likely to think these arguments were pervasive or this person is winning, whether they agree with this person on this side or not, and likewise on the other side, that, in fact, we are going to be shaped in terms of our perception of, na of international events based on the, uh, uh, the uh, country in which we live, that, in fact, we are going to have a perspective that favors our side over another side, uh, and we have to guard against that, of course, if we want to know what the real truth is. But this is not the kind of social reality that the relativists want to preach about today. They want to go to the fundamentals of actual reality, not our perception of it. So for instance, my wife and I may argue as to whether it's raining outside on those rare Saturday mornings, perhaps when we are uh, able to uh, sleep in late and uh, we have the blinds closed and the fan is going and uh, we got some new uh, storm windows. So it keeps out a lot of the outside sound. But, uh, you know, is it raining or is it not raining outside? We may argue about, well, not really argue. We may have some disagreement about that. I think it's raining. She thinks it's not raining about that. And, in fact, we may go ahead to decide whether it's a great day or not based on whether it's raining. I grew up, my dad was a contractor. So uh, we would have to uh, get up early in the morning, go to the job. Sometimes we have to drive a long way. Then we'd have to uh, work all day long. Uh, but if it was raining, if it was raining, we'd wait to see what's going to drive to the job, make sure everything's covered up. And if it's still raining, persistent rain, then uh, we get to go to the river and go fishing. 
you can fish in the rain, you can't work in the rain. That's like a good rule, in case you were wondering about that. And so rainy days always just make me happy when it's raining in the morning. Raining in the afternoon, I don't care about. But raining in the morning, that's a great day. Uh, but my wife doesn't seem to think that as much. But here's the truth of the matter is that it doesn't matter whether we think it's raining or whether we think it's a great day or not. It is. Uh, there's either rain outside or there's not rain outside. Now we can we can uh, decide based on our own personal preferences as whether it's a good day or a bad day if it's raining, but it doesn't change the fact of whether it's raining or not. Our, you look at the issue of uh, uh, the uh, American Medical Association and their view of alcoholism and uh, people who are driving drunk versus the mothers against drunk drivers and their view of alcoholism and whether people were driving under the influence or not. Two very disparate points of view, and they can debate about what kind of punishment ought to be levied on someone who is driving under the influence. But what they can't change is the fact that this person is driving intoxicated or this person is an alcoholic. Maybe we have some view of it as being a disease, or we have some view of it as being reprehensible behavior, but we can't disagree about the fact here's a person who is a drunk, and that's not going to change depending upon our evaluation. Our look at the issue of abortion, you know, one of the things that divides our country almost right down the middle is the issue of abortion, and uh, probably the equal division is due to the PR on both sides. If you can get exactly the right phrase, you can win most debates in America this day and age, but right to life or right to choose, those are equally potent within the values of America today, and uh, they may be able to argue legitimately right to choose, argue legitimately right to life, but what does, does not change, whichever of those kind of perspectives you use, does not change the fact that here was a life that will no longer be lived because of abortion. That's a fundamental reality that's not changed by the way in which we want to evaluate it. Even in America today, the idea of a good life uh, is uh, kind of up for grabs as to what makes a good life. And in fact, the whole definition about marriage depends upon the value system that we use. There are plenty of people today who would say that a good marriage is about equality. A good marriage is about an equal partnership. That a good marriage means that the husband and the wife equally share the uh, wage-earning responsibilities, equally share the child-rearing responsibilities. But what they cannot set aside is the fundamental fact of marriage being between a man and a woman. And according to Genesis chapter 2, it is the man who was made to tend the garden and the woman who was made to be a helper. You can't set aside those fundamental truths as the world attempts to do. Once we lose the Bible definition of things, the Bible definition from a God who created us and knows who we are and knows what we are capable of and knows what's going to make us live meaningful lives, once we cut ourselves free from that, who knows 
where the boat will drift at that point in time. You consider what's happening in America today with the movement towards same-sex marriages and trial marriages and serial polygamy through divorce and remarriage, and you even understand that uh, the Supreme Court justice decision that said that a marriage could equally be between two men as it could between a man and a woman has set aside fundamental realities and set them aside in such a way Everybody is just waiting for the next court case in which there will be marriages approved and the law of the land between three men or two men and a woman or who knows between a man and a chair. There are no limits once you set aside the fundamental reality of what God has determined marriage is embedded in creation. In the beginning, God creating the man and woman. That's a fundamental fact that you can't set aside. Now, you may evaluate you don't like that based on your own personal preferences or your personal situation, but that doesn't set aside those fundamental facts. In fact, even today, a person's sex seems to be something that's socially relative, that you can decide that you are a male or a female contrary to your biological sex. And, uh, you know, there are very small, tiny percentage of uh, people whose uh, DNA biology is such that it might be uh, in some ways ambiguous, but uh, that's, uh, you know, less than one-tenth of one percent of the population. But that's not really what the issue is about in the world today. The issue is that you should be entitled to decide whether you're a male or a female. And uh, it doesn't matter what the biology is. If you authentically think that you are the other gender, the other sex, then that's what you are. And uh, even to the point that uh, health insurance plans, Medicare, prison inmates even are being uh, subsidized in uh, sex change kind of operations. And uh, you can... You maybe can say this is a good policy or bad policy based on my personal preferences, but you fundamentally can't set aside the biological reality. This kind of social relativism thus says that one's values and uh, one's morals depend upon group membership, that this group may have a different set of values than another group may have. And in fact, we have you know, this uh, debate in America today that uh, taken for granted in times past values of our country, that conscientiousness, hard work, delaying gratification and saving for a better tomorrow, now are derided as bourgeois values that are not appropriate for every group in America. This is the fundamental basic political principle of our day, that if you're in this group, some rules apply to you. If you're in this group, different rules apply to you. And that, you know, the, the exercise of politics is exerting control today over social reality, that we're going to change what reality is for human beings, that we're going to make life relative to your group membership, uh, whether that's through political control of education, whether it's shaping the worldview and the lives of millions today in terms of policy prescriptions, ultimately, if you can say it loud enough, if you can get enough political clout, you can change the reality of the world because they have come unrooted 
and they have pulled up the anchor, and there's nothing that holds them to a uh, reality that God has created. Even history becomes subject to relativism. Uh, it's been an ancient kind of an idea that history is written by the winners, uh, that uh, the people who win the battle get to write the history and make themselves look better than uh, uh, those who lost the battle. Uh, but fundamentally, there was something that happened. Uh, one, one group behaved in this way, another group behaved in the other way. That fundamentally happened, and you can't change that, even if you try and change what people believe about that. Orwell, in his book 1984, suggested that if you control the past, you can control the future. If you control the present, you can control the past. And he uses elaborate scheme there in Oceana to demonstrate that you can make people actually believe this is what history was just yesterday. And if you can do that, you can change the way they behave today. And that means you can change what's going to happen in the future. And in fact, we see ourselves engaged in something pretty near that in America today, as it has happened in plenty of other countries and other periods of time. Rewrite the history to change the facts, to change the future. And uh, maybe uh, you would like uh, this uh, quote from uh, the wicked, uh, the wonderful wizard and the wicked uh, uh, musical, depending on your point of view, one person can be called a liberator or a traitor, an invader or a savior. Back home, believe, believe all kinds of things that aren't true. We call it history. And maybe you can change what people know, but you can't change the fundamental fact. That's what we're concerned about. You cannot change what actually happened in the past, even if you change the way people think about it today. Uh, the ideas of uh, political correctness, that we can only say it this way as opposed to saying it the way it actually happened, that we can't tell the truth about what is a moral failure in the world today. That's this idea of relativism. The whole idea of a cancel culture, we can eliminate this as if it never happened as opposed to learning the lessons from it if we presume that it was a right or wrong behavior, we ought to learn something from it instead of canceling it. Re-education camps to change the way in which people fundamentally understand the world and who they are. And of course, this idea of relativism begins in some sense of we want to be nice to people. We don't want people to be offended. We want to be tolerant. But ultimately, it becomes the worst kind of intolerance. We cannot tolerate someone who claims here is a fundamental right or a fundamental wrong, that we have to be so tolerant that you are not allowed to say to someone else, my set of values, the Bible says that's fundamentally wrong. And we're moving in a direction in America today that's pretty frightening that we'll not be able to preach the truth that is embedded in Scripture. Think about, uh, you know, particular specific issues that are hot-button issues in the world today. Uh, that is homosexuality. Uh, it's absolutely incredible in the past 20 years in America that we've moved from the point in which almost everybody understood that, whether they wanted to be 
you know, kindly disposed toward the individuals that were caught up in that sin or not. Everybody understood that to be abhorrent behavior. And now it is really difficult to get away with and without being called to say that's a sin. That's an abhorrent behavior. But the truth of the matter has not changed from the time in which God created us, man and woman. And uh, sin remains sin even despite the kind of relativism that we practice in America today. Uh, this leads to the kind of outraged claims over absolute truth that are characteristic of the world. That is, when we preach the scriptures and we say, you know, there's a judgment day coming and the sheep are going to be separated from the goats, that this is the law that God has proposed and these are the things that are wrong and these are the things that are going to be punished. There's this kind of sense of horror that you can't, you can't uh, know that. Nobody can know what's absolutely right or absolutely wrong. It's not like I know. It's just that God has told me that. He's embedded it in creation. And we need to understand the fundamental fact of the authority of Scripture. I, 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 I uh, get confused like everybody else. You know, there are things that uh, once I was just completely uh, horrified by, and now I'm like, well, maybe we should be kind of tolerant. Maybe we should be kindly disposed. But you can't change the fact that God has created us, and he said, these things are wrong, and this is the right way to behave. And that one of these days, God is going to call an end to this world, and there's going to be a judgment day. And that judgment day is going to be on the basis of his standards of morality, of right and wrong. You understand this is one of the dangers of denominationalism that we've always kind of uh, understood. That uh, the denominationalists, you know, are tolerant about this point of view and that point of view and the other. And they disagree with one another. And the outsiders look at it and they say, you know, if you Christians can't agree, then clearly there's nothing here for us to pay attention to. There's nothing to see because you don't agree about the things that uh, are uh, significantly important you have a very different reading of the Scriptures, so there must not be a one and only true uh, reading of the Scriptures, maybe not even a one and only truth that God has delivered to mankind. And Jesus said that's, that's going to be a problem in the future. We need to agree, even if we maybe disagree about the interpretation of a particular passage, we need to all agree this is where the truth is in the Bible. If, if, we, if, we, if we leave that truth out, then there are no truths, and the relativists are going to win. The uh, denominationalists, of course, have just given you know, one, one sort of avenue of attack about that, but it's certainly true that throughout history, the uh, opponents of Christianity have chosen every violation of... Uh, fundamental principles of scripture on the part of Christians or Christian groups uh, in order to discount the entirety of uh, the scriptures. That is the inquisition or the excommunication of Galileo, all of those things they point to and say, it's clear you don't live by your own rules, consequently those rules must not be true. But 
It doesn't matter whether we are as we ought to be or whether we are hypocrites. There is still a fundamental truth that God has revealed to us about what's right and what's wrong. And we, of course, need to learn to apply that in our own life in the same way that we want to tell other people they need to apply it in their lives. Um, scripture certainly presents the possibility that we might not uh, you know, read uh, correctly the world in which we live or even read correctly the promises that God has made. In Jeremiah chapter 7, that famous temple speech, uh, uh, Jeremiah at the behest of God, points out to the, to the Israelites, to those in Jerusalem, just because they could say, this is the temple that God approved of being built by Solomon, does not believe, mean that we are the people of God. Uh, verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We are protected because we're the people of God because here's the temple of the Lord. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed for its sins. Even when we have misunderstood, even when God's people, the nation of Israel had misunderstood or misapplied the rules that he had set in place, those rules were not changed, and the punishment surely came upon them as a result of their sin. Here's what we find, this kind of social relativism in the world today, that, uh, you know, we find these people believe this and these people believe that, and your group membership determines what you think is right, what you think is wrong. Nobody can ever know what's right and wrong. There is no fundamental what's right and wrong. There is just our own opinions about that. And that, that says, you know, there's got to be some way that we can sort through all this confusion. How can, we, how can we untie this Gordian knot? How can we figure out how we're supposed to live our lives? We need some place to stand. I'm reminded of Archimedes saying, give me a place to stand and I'll move the earth. The fulcrum and the lever are mighty, but I need a place to stand. Where can I stand? And of course, where is the place to stand by which we can discern what is really right or really wrong. You're not going to find it in the universities, and you're not going to find it in these modernisms. The only place in which you're going to find a place in which you can stand and actually have a solid place where you can move these various debates, sort through them, figure out what is right and wrong, is in the Bible. The Bible is the place that tells us what's right and wrong. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. And I understand full well, and probably even, I, I don't know, I understand full well, you know, my uh, colleagues in the universities, not always have to be careful about that, not Florida College, but, the, you know, the people that you encounter in professional uh, meetings, they're, they're horrified by that. They're absolutely amazed at how simple-minded you can be. Uh, I remember when I was in uh, graduate school, and I would argue and debate with uh, some of my uh, uh, fellow students, and I was 10 years older than most of the rest of them, as old as some of the professors. And we would engage in these kind of debates, and they were puzzled because I, I was doing as well as they were in terms of mastering the material. Uh, 
But still, I had these strange, bizarre kind of ideas. And then they discovered that I was preaching uh, at a small congregation on Sunday mornings. And it's like, oh, okay, now they've got it. You know, they can categorize me as a preacher who's preaching for the money, so that's okay. We don't have to worry about these debates anymore. It's absolutely amazing how quickly all of that shut down. But, uh, you know, the, the fact is we need the Bible. We just whatever view you have of the world, set aside the fact that we are already Bible believers. The confusion that exists, the moral anarchy that exists in the world, requires that we have some kind of standard. This moral relativism that exists in the world today is just uh, creating chaos, a tower of Babel, as it were, that we can't keep up. That's the way in which people you know, think in the world today. There, there's no right or wrong. There's no once for all truth. It's all relative. My opinion as good as your opinion. Uh, it's the way in which we interpret everything today about human beings. Martin Heidegger said, no age has known so many things about man as ours, and no age has known less about what man is. All of these debates about gender roles, about sexual ethics, uh, interpretation of history, about political systems. It's all rooted in, you know, what's going to be best for man? What's going to be best for people? And they, they don't even understand the nature of people. What would make human beings happy? What kind of life is going to be productive and give people what they need, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of fulfillment? They have no way of answering those questions because they've given up any real understanding of who and what human beings are. There is no way in which you can answer the question about what's going to make people happy until you know what people are. There's this sense that uh, anything goes in terms of uh, trying to uh, solve people's problems. They, don't, they just don't understand man. We've got to go back to the scriptures and understand that God created us out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into us and made us a living soul, that we are a twofold creature. We're of this earth, but we belong in heaven, that we were created to have a relationship with God, and that God as the creator knows what is best for us, uh, and that his word for us gives us the answers to what's a good life. And you see that, you know, amazingly so in David's uh, Psalms. He has had a kind of a checkered life, but he knows the fundamental answer is in God's word. Uh, both the 19th Psalm and the 119th Psalm are praise of God's communication to us. And the 119th Psalm in particular, he, 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 he praises the word of God verse after verse and uh, stanza after stanza, and he says in the 99th verse, I have more insight than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Children who know the fundamentals of Scripture know more about human beings today than their teachers and the university professors who've spent their life trying to study man, psychology, sociology, uh, biology, outside of the context of God's word. Uh, the 119th Psalm and the 104th verse, 
I get understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate every other way. I hate it because it steals away from me, and it steals away from other people the ability to understand man. And that's, you know, that's not to brag that we know more than other people know. It's just a fundamental fact. If we don't agree about the standard, then we're never going to be able to agree about the reality of the world in which we live. We'll be constantly debating and yelling at one another without ever ability to reach a conclusion until we agree on what the standard is. The intellectual madness of the world in which we live, I, I said in the uh, morning hour, we're taking a journey through the bizarre mind of modern man. And it is a bizarre place. It is filled with all kinds of uh, inconsistencies and illogic and all kinds of confusion that are not even recognizable to those who are thinking those things because they don't have a standard by which to measure it. We have to understand, of course, there are some limitations in the way in which we can understand the world. That, as uh, Jeremiah said, it's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. You know, we are, we are caught in uh, some limited ability of understanding in the material world in which we live. Uh, we have some access to God as we pray to him, and we have some access to God as we read his word. But ultimately, there are limitations on what we can understand, limitations on the quality of decisions that we can make until we accept God's standard for us. And he says, this is what you should do, because this is what's going to make you happy. Not the kind of relativism of the day. And there is this kind of popular modern relativism of situation ethics, in which Joseph Fletcher, just one of the early enunciators of this, in which they suggest that really there are no fundamental rules. Everything is relative. It depends. Each to their own. Everybody's entitled to his own opinion. If it's not wrong, it may be wrong for me, but it's not wrong for you. You have to do what's right for you. And the, and, the, and the standard that we use in the world today, this is their new word, authentic. If you, if you think this is your authentic self, where they get the idea, understand this is my authentic self, I don't know, but that's just a cover word for the fact that this is what you want to do, then that's what you're entitled to do. And nobody should be able to tell you not to do that. That it just depends. What's right and wrong just depends. And... Uh, Joseph Fletcher talks about it, uh, you know, it's like, uh, like heuristics, you know, that you punt on the fourth down. Of course, if you're on the 10-yard uh, line and it's fourth and one, you don't punt. You may uh, kick a field goal or you may go for it, but you don't punt. That's just a general rule. Or uh, on, uh, in baseball, you got uh, three balls, you take the next pitch. Not if it's a high one, I don't, but you take the next pitch. That's the general rule if you got three balls. But what, what he fails to understand is, you know, if that's the analogy you want to use, there are only four downs. I don't care what you do with the fourth down. You're not getting another one unless you've gotten a, a first down. And there are only three strikes and you're out. Those are fundamental rules, and that's the kind of universe we live in. 
Maybe there's some heuristics about, you know, how I can, uh, you know, manage to solve the difficulty that exists in my marriage or how I can solve the problems that exist in my own uh, confused mind. But those do not set aside the fundamental principles and the fundamental truths of Scripture, that there is a right and there is a wrong, and that God has determined those things in creation, and that we're only going to be happy. We're only going to be what we were intended to be when we understand those rules and we fulfill those uh, principles in our own lives. It's just amazing to me as I have conversations with people, modern men, you know, that they are absolutely certain that there are no absolutes, that we have to let each person decide for themselves, and that in that way somehow there's going to emerge not just happy people, but a happy society. But history is against that, unless they've rewritten it, that there is a right and a wrong way to do things, that God has created the world with certain kinds of rules embedded in it. He's created human psychology with certain kinds of rules embedded in it. And he has created a way by which we can have the kind of fulfillment that he made us for. But we can't have that on our own uh, kind of grounds and our own basis. We have to have that by conforming ourselves to the creator. Everybody really wants the same things. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, here the lust of the flesh, these are the things that make life hard to live. Here are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. The hippies borrow that expression and put it on their black lights even back in the 60s. We all want the same thing. We're all human beings created in the image of God. And the Creator knows how to write the manual for a finely tuned, well-running human being. And you're not going to find that in therapy, and you're not going to find that in modern education. The only place you're going to find that is in the scriptures. And, you know, it's not really a system. We talk about modern-isms as systems. There is no Christian-ism. God just spoke to us, and he said, I want you back. I want you to have the relationship with me that you were created for. I want you to have what I created you to have. And you've ruined it, but I've made a way for you. I set aside the wisdom of the world and made it look foolish when I hung Jesus on the cross and he died for your sins. And you too can partake of that kind of salvation. Be reunited with me. Have the hope of heaven in which there are no more of these kinds of problems. But you can only do that on the terms that he has created. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You need to repent of your sins as they're defined in the scriptures. And you need to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ and his righteousness because you have none of your own. You need to have your sins washed away in his blood, be clothed in his righteousness, and enter into the life abundant. That's the only way it's going to happen. And we are privileged to be able to preach that message in a world gone mad. They need to hear it. We need to preach it to them. And if you're here today and you need to obey the invitation of Jesus Christ, you need to do that today as we stand and sing this song of encouragement.